BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is a special edition of Political Breakdown. Governor Gavin Newsom names Secretary of State Alex Padilla to replace Kamala Harris in the U.S. Senate. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. The appointment of Padilla will make him the first Latino to represent California in the U.S. Senate, if you can believe that. Newsom's decision has been long anticipated, but he's also been under a lot of pressure to name another black woman to replace Harris, who is, after all, the only African-American woman currently in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, definitely going to be some disappointed folks there. But in choosing Padilla, Newsom picks a longtime ally, somebody who has supported him in politics for more than a decade, Marisa. And he's going to get at least one more Palm appointment. Uh, Scott, a replacement for Padilla as Secretary of State. We are hearing today that it is likely going to happen uh, to be Shirley Weber, who is uh, Assemblywoman from San Diego. Um, and, you know, Scott, he could get two appointments if Attorney General Javier Becerra is actually confirmed as Health and Human Services Secretary, which, of course, Joe Biden named him as just a week or so ago. Yeah, that is. And that's a somewhat of an if. They seem to be targeting Becerra as one of the one or two people they may want to try to pick off, but uh, a lot of power for Gavin Newsom. He's going to have a lot of friends over the next, uh, yeah, actually for the past couple months, he's had many people knocking on his door, but it all adds up, Marie said, to a very momentous day in California history, a chance for Gavin Newsom to maybe change the subject away from the pandemic and his dinner at French Laundry, at least for now. And joining us to talk about all this is Libby Denkman. She's senior politics reporter at KPCC in Los Angeles. She covers issues around voting, among many other things. Hey, Libby. Hey, Scott. Hey, Marisa. So, so happy to have you. Happy to have you. So Padilla comes from your neck of the woods. You know, what's what's your impression of him down there? You know, Padilla was this political wonderkind in Los Angeles. He was 26 years old when he was first elected to the city council in Los Angeles. Just a couple years later, he became the city council president, coming from a background of being an engineer. He went to MIT. He was going to go into the aerospace industry. But he said over the years that Prop 187 and the anti-immigrant early 90s uh, political scene really uh, inspired him to go into politics. He's the son of Mexican immigrants, and he felt like it was his uh, duty to go in and, and represent his community. And, you know, he really was a rising star for, for some time in L.A. Then he went to the state Senate and uh, was uh, in 2014, he, he decided to set his sights on the secretary of state's office. So, you know, this is somebody who's had a lot of different hats, but also has been such a longtime ally of Governor Newsom that, as you mentioned, it's it's really not much of a surprise to see the governor uh, tap Padilla for this job. 
Yeah, and I mean, Libby, you know, you mentioned his kind of humble roots. Um, you know, his dad was a short order cook. His mom cleaned houses. They were both immigrants from Mexico. And we saw, you know, in this Zoom, very 2020 Zoom video put out by the governor's office, um, really Padilla tearing up talking about that his mom passed just two years ago. Um, I mean, what's your sense? Obviously, we can talk about the disappointment. I think some women might be feeling some black uh, folks in the black community. But this is also historic because, I mean, California, we've never had a U.S. Latino senator. That's pretty remarkable. It really is. And, you know, for a kid that grew up in Pacoima, his family still lives there. Um, You know, it's a it's a huge barrier breaking pick for California, where 40 percent of the population is Latino. Um, And I think it's also that working class background that um, sets him apart from some other uh, choices, potentially. But you mentioned, I mean, you know, that we had Karen Bass, the congresswoman from L.A., Barbara Lee from the Bay Area, also really well respected, longtime politicians. And Newsom was getting so much pressure to look at replacing Harris with another black woman because Harris is the last black woman in the Senate. So, you know, certainly it's a huge day for California and the Latino community to see one of their own go to the Senate. But at the same time, there's a lot of disappointment with the African-American community. There is, in fact, San Francisco's Mayor London Breed, an African-American woman, expressed some disappointment. Maybe just a touch of, I don't know if anger is probably too strong a word, but, you know, I think there's a lot of passion around the fact that there will be no black women in the U.S. Senate. Uh, That is a real loss. Um, I did talk to Alex Padilla earlier today about the historic nature of naming the first Latino senator, and here's a little bit of what he had to say. Uh, It's, uh, you know, honestly, it's a big honor, uh, and it's humbling on so many levels. Yes, there's a lot of work to do, beginning with uh, how we better respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, Uh, but I can't help but uh, step back and think of uh, you know, not just my life's journey, but particularly the struggle and sacrifice of my parents who came as immigrants from Mexico to the United States in search of a better life. You know, so committed to trying to provide my brother, my sister and I with a, a good education. And to think that in one generation, you know, my family's gone from being the uh, the cooks and the house cleaners to uh, now not just serving as one of the constitutional officers for the state of California, but being a member of the United States Senate. And Marisa, we talked with uh, Alex Padilla a while ago. We're going to hear some of uh, that interview. But, you know, like a lot of Latinos who are in state politics or local politics, for that matter, he goes engaged after, you know, the ballot measure Prop 187, Mm -hmm. which targeted uh, immigrants, uh, you know, people here who were here without documents. uh, But it really reminded him of his own family and their immigrant experience and and really uh, gave him the passion to get into politics. Yeah, it's been interesting, I mean, to see, I think, over the past couple of years, kind of the the that generation of activists really become part of the political institution in California. Um, Padilla served alongside Felipe Fuentes, who also grew up in the same neighborhood. I mean, you see this, you know, Villaraigosa, who, uh, Antonio Villaraigosa, former LA mayor who ran against Gavin Newsom. Um, but Libby, there's also obviously the politics of all that. And like, you know, Padilla did support Newsom against Villaraigosa. That was a big moment in LA and in in state politics. I mean, how much of this do you think has to do with that? Or maybe even we know Dianne Feinstein um, has has supported Padilla. He worked for her before he ran for city council in his 20s. 
Yeah, I think Padilla had, you know, long time been there for Gavin Newsom. He uh, made inroads for him in L.A. when Newsom was, you know, first running for, for mayor in San Francisco. He was making introductions for Newsom in L.A. So this is like a long time friendship between the two of them. Um, there's also a lot of connections, though, between Padilla and city politics to this day. I mean, you, you mentioned kind of that generation that came up during the 90s and during Prop 187. Kevin DeLeon, a current city councilman and uh, presumptive candidate for mayor in a couple of years, is another one of those members. Um, also, our, our city council president in Los Angeles, Nuri Martinez, uh, her chief of staff is... Padilla's younger brother. So wow. they, this is like a tight knit community <laughs> here. It really is. And there's all kinds of connections like that. You know, people who used to work with each other, things like that. So, um, you know, oftentimes it's uh, not obvious why a choice is made, but, you know, this has clearly been um, just such a long time allyship between Newsom and, and Padilla. Um, and it also, uh, you know, in the future, clears the field potentially for other candidates who might be eyeing the L.A. mayor's race because <laughs> Padilla was also rumored to have his eyes on that uh, potential race if he was not going to see uh, a national office. Well, you mentioned that Padilla did work as a very young man at the age of, I think, 25. He had graduated from MIT, worked for Dianne Feinstein as a personal assistant. I think he might have been a Coro fellow way back when. And, you know, I asked him about the criticism that Dianne Feinstein has been getting lately, being too bipartisan, being too chummy with uh, Lindsey Graham on the Judiciary Committee. And, you know, I asked him, like, you know, how does he see himself fitting in when it comes to things like working across the aisle? And he, here's a little bit of what he had to say. He wasn't didn't directly address it, but he did say this. And when I say I know what I'm going to the United States Senate to fight for, again, it's that fair shake, the opportunity to achieve the American dream, improve upon health care, uh, education, economic opportunity. I'll work with anybody uh, to advance that, but I'm going to be very clear as to what my agenda is and who I'm there to represent. Yeah, it'll be interesting because there has been a lot of talk about Dianne Feinstein, perhaps, uh, stepping down early. That would give Newsom yet another appointment. We won't get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, but obviously, as the oldest senator in Washington, uh, she, you know, some people are wondering maybe maybe she'll step aside a little early, especially after that really damaging New Yorker article. Or oldest, but not by by many years, actually. That's true. I think Grassley <laughs> is like a couple months behind. Well, given that, I mean, I'm curious what both of you think. You know, Libby, you've been covering voting in LA and we saw a real, I mean, I, I think there's two kind of big things that Padilla has done as Secretary of State. One of them was Motor Voter, which is this automatic registration at the DMV. It had some bumps when it rolled out, but I think he would say it's been very successful. And we did see the biggest, you know, registration and turnout, I think in California history this year. Um, the other one is this voting center model, where instead of a lot of little, you know, small places and garages and, you know, around town to go to vote to, you go to one center, fewer of them, we did see a lot of problems with that in LA in uh, the primary, and yet it really went pretty smoothly, I think, in the fall. I mean, what do you think is his legacy around that? And could he bring some of that thinking to DC? I mean, there's no doubt that when Alex Padilla became Secretary of State, he wanted to register a million voters, and it ended up being something like four million voters that were registered since he became Secretary of State. He's expanded the franchise to younger voters, letting them pre-register to vote. Um, during his tenure, the, the time that you have to register, you know, extends now through Election Day, so you can register same day and vote. Um, you know, the, the Voters' Choice Act and vote centers in uh, the 
uh, Los Angeles primary were a special case because Los Angeles, unlike all the other 12 or 13 counties that had implemented this system, did not mail ballots to every voter in that primary. And, you know, that's a choice that was made and approved because uh, the uh, registrar of voters here thought that it would be uh, too difficult to kind of ramp up that vote by mail system. At the same time, we were changing our the machines that we were using to vote and changing to the vote center model. Now, fast forward a few months after we saw those incredibly long lines at many vote centers in the spring, for the fall, the COVID pandemic prompted the state to require everyone to get a ballot in the mail if you're registered. And that proved to really be the key. I think that and um, the information uh, that was out there, the real focus for elected officials to inform Angelinos about uh, registering and getting your ballot in the mail, that combined to make voting a really smooth process in Los Angeles. Um, so again, I, Alex Padilla implemented and helped uh, you know, push the Voters' Choice Act statewide, but the challenges in Los Angeles in the spring really had to do, I think, with our specific cases of um, not having the ballots out to everybody. And that really put a lot of pressure on the vote centers. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break. Libby Denkman, thank you so much. Senior politics reporter at KPCC. Have a wonderful Christmas and New Year, and we'll see you in 2021. And we're all ready for that, I think. Yeah, we are ready to turn the page. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays. All right. Take care. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to get into Padilla's life and career, bringing you a conversation with the Secretary of State from earlier this year. You're listening to a special political breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to a special edition of Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're talking about California's Secretary of State Alex Padilla, his appointment to the U.S. Senate by Governor Gavin Newsom. That's right. And now we want to dive into Padilla's life and career. We had a chance to talk with him about it on this show, Political Breakdown, earlier this year. Let's take a listen. Your parents both came from Mexico. Uh, You grew up in a 
working class family in Pacoima, and you ended up going to MIT in Massachusetts, and you studied rocket science. Um, how did how did you end up on that path? <laughs> so that that's one way of putting it. <laughs> no, no, you're abs- you're absolutely right. Uh, you know when, when uh, we say that, I feel like uh, I'm living the American dream come true. It's uh, uh, it couldn't be any more genuine. You know, proud of my parents and the example that they set uh, coming from Mexico, striving for a better life and life opportunity. Uh, they're actually from different parts of Mexico. My father's from the state of Jalisco. My mother was from the state of uh, Chihuahua. They they met in Los Angeles, fell in love and applied for green cards in that order. Uh, and I thank <laughs> the uh, U.S. government every day for having said yes, because uh, if those applications would have been denied, my life story would be much, much different. Uh, but my parents uh, normalized, uh, got married, and settled into the San Fernando Valley to, to raise a family. So uh, I have an older sister who has gone from being a teacher's assistant to a teacher to principal. She's now an administrator in the Los Angeles Unified School District. I have a younger brother who works for, uh, he's chief of staff to the president of the Los Angeles City Council, a position I held several years ago. And uh, I'm the middle child, which probably explains a lot. Uh, what, what does and, that explain uh, in your mind? Yeah. <laughs> happen to serve, ask a psychologist. I don't know. Uh, happen to serve as, a, you know, one of the constitutional officers for the most populous state in the nation. So, indeed, the American dream is alive and well. And about uh, that rocket science thing. When I was growing up, here, here's the deal. When I was growing up, my, my, my life dream was to play first base for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I know KQED is a Bay Area station. A lot of <laughs> It's okay. Here I'm already. But we're all one state. I, mean? I love baseball, uh, but I was smart enough to know that the odds were long to become a professional athlete. So I needed a backup plan. My favorite subject in school was math, uh, and somehow I did well in science. So predictably, the teachers, the counselors said, well, "You ought to be an engineer. You ought to be an engineer." And when it came time to applying for college, in addition to the UCs and the CSUs, uh, they put it in my head that I should apply to this engineering school back east called the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, Felt it was a long shot to apply, uh, but I did. And between the time I applied and the acceptance letter arrived, I realized that if I got in, I had to go. Now, realize this is before the days of www.anything. So it required making a phone call, sending a letter, requesting an application, and getting brochures in the mail. Uh, But I realized that an acceptance letter was not just a chance of a lifetime for me, but frankly, the fulfillment of my parents' dreams and struggles and sacrifice because they worked hard. My dad was a short order cook for 40 years before he retired. My mom used to clean houses for those same 40 years before she retired. All they wanted was for my brother and my sister and I to get a chance at a good education. And so uh, blessed that I got it. Uh, thought engineering was that safe, reliable career path for me so that I could provide for my family and take care of my parents. And uh, when I came home in 1994 from college, a few things that were happening that turned my life upside down, left a very stable path to one of the most unpredictable paths you can imagine, that being government and politics specifically. 
All right, I want to get to that in a second. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second. But before you you, you move on to that, I just want to know, because, you know, you mentioned your family, you know, your parents had these very blue-collar jobs. I read about you helping collect recycling with your dad at one point, that you guys spent a lot of time at libraries and pools in the summers to, you know, as basically childcare. Um, At the same time, you're not the only one from that neighborhood who rose into politics. Um, You served with Assemblymember Felipe Fuentes and a handful of other folks who came up. I just want to ask you about like the 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 culture was there an expectation beyond just your immediate family to do well um or did you ever feel like the negative peer pressure like how did you kind of balance that yeah no look it was a lot of both um you know at times they tell people uh, uh or ask people have you ever seen the movie la bamba right the story of richie valens mm-hmm. well richie valens <laughs> is from pacoima richie valens went to san Fernando high school i'm from that same community uh but at a very different time have you ever seen the movie Straight Out of Compton? Uh, right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was the time period yeah. that I was in high school, uh, not in South Los Angeles in Pacoima, but by the way, folks, you know where uh, Rodney King had his fateful experience with the Los Angeles Police Department mm-hmm. was in Pacoima, not in South mm-hmm. Los Angeles. So it was a hybrid of strong uh, work ethic and family values demonstrated by my parents. And, and most of the families in the community, right? Pacoima is this blue collar community, hardworking folks, a lot of immigrants just trying to make it and, and do well. And so we did have this uh, example, not so much pressure, but an example of you know, as tough as we may have it individually, we have a moral obligation uh, to help others to the extent that we can. I was raised Catholic and my mom you know, had probably the strongest faith of anybody in our household and in the community. And there was never an issue of whether we could help a neighbor in need. We always did what we could. So I, I always internalized that. Again, no no, uh, 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 no surprise that my brother, my sister, and I are all in some form of public service. Yeah. Um, yeah whether, right. the, whether the temptations and dangers out there, whether it's gang violence or anything else, uh, absolutely. And so some maybe some of the uh, the survivalist instincts and in, in the battle to uh, you know make sure that we got through uh, is part of the resiliency that we've built uh, to be scrappy in the political arena. Because uh, you're yeah, right, I'm not the I only bet. one who <laughs> is from Pacoima, graduated from San Fernando, that's in public service now. Uh, the the first specific opportunity uh, for me was volunteering on a campaign for then. Uh, assembly candidate Tony Cardenas, who had left and you were like 20, what, 22 or his father was from Jalisco. Uh, he was in real estate at the time, running for state assembly. And I went from volunteer to a volunteer organizer to campaign manager within a couple of months in a very long shot campaign. He won, served in the legislature, served in the city council, and now he's been in Congress for several terms. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at the representatives today of our community, whether it's two members of the city council in Los Angeles, Nuri Martinez, Monica Rodriguez, also San Fernando High School graduates, our assembly member Luz Rivas, another San Fernando and MIT graduate. You know, we've made it a point to uh, stay connected and heaven forbid people, you know, work together from the same community to try to uplift that community. That's the way it's supposed to be. All right. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Uh, you're listening to Political Breakdown, and we're talking today with a man who oversees California elections, Secretary of State Alex Padilla. And I want to ask you, uh, you were, I think, about 21 years old when Prop 187 was on the ballot, an anti-immigrant ballot measure perceived by many. Its backers say it wasn't really that. It was against illegal immigration. Nonetheless, how did that affect your interest in politics? Because that's right around the 
time you were graduating from college. Right. No, and that's uh, look, Prop 187 uh, changed my life trajectory uh, dramatically. Uh, fresh home from college, having earned that uh, mechanical engineering degree after four winters in Massachusetts, you know, I thought uh, this was not a, just the, you know the the dream come true for me, but the dream come true for my parents that I spoke about earlier. Uh, and the environment I came home to in California was this, but right? it was a depressed economy, you know, still struggling, especially in Southern California, to recover from the Northridge earthquake, post Cold War. Defense Department cutbacks, the aerospace industry was tanking, and my job at Hughes Aircraft was highly questionable since I had zero seniority there. Uh, and I was looking at what else is there for me uh, career-wise. At the same time, this Metro Proposition 187 was on the November uh, 1994 ballot. Uh, and the rhetoric around that campaign, the scapegoating of immigrants, uh, the campaign wasn't too, uh, you know, specific about you know documented, undocumented, etc. They were just coming after immigrants. That was clearly the tone set by Pete Wilson, who was up for re-election at the time, and the California Republican Party. And it just shocked the heck out of me. How it, are they blaming the down economy, uh, the the tanking of the aerospace industry on people like my parents, mm. who have done nothing but work hard for decades, pay taxes for decades, abide by the law for decades. And if they're trying to blame people like my parents and families like mine, you know, multiply that by the millions and millions of similar families across California, that was just fundamentally wrong. And as cynical as I was about politics and government up until that point, I got the, the, the voice of my high school government teacher in my ear <laughs> that yes, we live in a democracy and we have the right to vote. But, but our voice is only heard if we exercise that right. And, you know, while we all have the right to vote, we also have the right to organize because going back to that math, you know, if I register and vote, that's one voice in the process. But if I can organize my community and move 100 or 1,000 people to register and vote, then that's political strength. And so uh, I realized that I needed to engage politically finally uh, if we wanted to not be scapegoated anymore, not wanted to be uh, targeted anymore. And so uh, that's what did it. Yeah. And I mean, you are not unique in that as well. I mean, I think we hear about that a lot from folks who came up during that era in L.A., um, especially Latinos, obviously. But I think a, a lot of people sort of had that experience. I want to ask you, because it, it, you had sort of after that a pretty meteoric rise um, by age 28. You had been elected to city council. And within two years, you were the president of the L.A. City Council. I think you broke a couple of barriers in that. Um can you talk about what, one thing that happened not long after, which was 9-11? You were actually acting mayor because Mayor Hahn at the time got stuck in D.C. Reading about that, that you had to kind of step into this role at a time of uncertainty, you know, made me think a lot about what we're going through right now. What did you learn there? And, and I don't know, what are you bringing to this crisis out of that experience so, at so young of an age? Well, I appreciate that question. I mean, first of all, 9-11 is a day that I'll never forget. And I'll uh, uh, talk about that experience and some of the lessons I learned. Uh, but, you know, with that uh, at the beginning of my career uh, and when I was in the state legislature during the Great Recession, 
you know, an economic collapse for the nation, another sort of national crisis that uh, I, I played a part in from a policymaker standpoint. And now as Secretary of State dealing with this, not just national, but global health pandemic, uh, there's, you know, governing and leadership in times of crisis that uh, uh, you kind of lean on uh, that apply today. Now, going back to 9-11, you know, woke up uh, that morning uh, to the news of the, the first tower and then the Pentagon and then the second tower. Uh, and it took all of about two seconds for me to remember that uh, Mayor Hahn was in Washington at the time. And by virtue of being president of the council, I was acting mayor. And what so, was the first uh, thought that went through your mind? You were like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Like, was it because it's an opportunity as well, right? I mean, there were a lot of people that probably wish they'd been acting mayor that day. Well, it's, uh, you know, not, not uh, a circumstance you wish upon anybody. Uh, because of the fear, obviously the casualties in in the New York region, um, but um, you know the, the briefings were still fresh, you know, from the emergency operations board and the police chief about uh, you know the protocols uh, that need to go into motion, and so uh, between talking to my staff and other city officials, did my best to get dressed quickly and get downtown as quickly as I could, uh, you know, try to monitor the situation, gather intelligence, and in multiple. Uh, public briefing opportunities took the opportunity to share the information in both English and Spanish, right? If we're uh, trying to keep the public informed uh, and uh, sort of comfort Angelenos because there were no credible threats to Los Angeles, uh, how do we tell people it's okay, we're going to be fine? And by the way, tomorrow, let's go back to normal, let's go back to work. Uh, and, and so two lessons that came from that one, the importance of data. And you're hearing this daily from Newsom at noon, looking at all the data points when it comes to coronavirus cases, fatalities, you know, protective equipment, et cetera. Uh, I remember asking our schools liaison, you know, if what school attendance on day two or day three after 9-11, because if it's very, very low, people aren't hearing our message about go back to normal. Same thing with you know, ridership on public transportation and, and things of that nature. So it was a little instinctual, but I'm glad I asked those questions because it helped a lot of decision making near term. Uh, but I'll tell you, over the course of the weeks uh, after 9-11, beginning to receive letters and postcards, even a couple of phone calls into the office in response to my bilingual uh, press conferences, you know, go back to Mexico, you know, since when do we speak Spanish? Mm -hmm. This is English only. This is America. All those sorts of things, even in Los Angeles in the year 2001. That was Secretary of State and soon to be U.S. Senator Alex Padilla talking with us on Political Breakdown earlier this year. And that is going to do it for this special edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays. Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 